0: Hey, gals, ghouls, and data staves of the world. This is your co-host, Cass Clark. And as always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Ryan C. Bradley. Hello. And today we have a super special uh, holiday treat for you. We're going to be doing a spoilery review of A Wounded Fawn. And then in the second half of this episode, we're going to have an interview with the star of the film, Josh Ruben, which is so exciting. Woo! <laughs> so let's start off with a film synopsis using greek mythology surrealist art and feminist themes a wounded fawn follows meredith portrayed by sarah lind who's an art curator who's looking to get back into the dating scene and unfortunately finds herself in a cabin with a serial killer named bruce who's portrayed by josh rubin the film is co-written by travis stevens and nathan faudre and also directed by stevens as well
1: you have very good taste in art
0: thank you Do you work for a gallery or a private collector? So what did you think of the movie?
2: I really liked it. Um, Just overall, I had a good time. Let's talk about the cinematography first, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this film is, uh, for listeners who might not be aware of going in, it's 16 millimeter film gauge. And so that means it's like actual film, analog film on set. Someone's going around with a camcorder. It's not digital film. And an important distinction to make with that is, it's so risky because film is expensive. So like you don't have infinite amount of film the way you have infinite film when it's digital to an extent. And also you have to take a lot of breaks when you're shooting, which makes just to literally reload the, like the camcorder and whatnot. So I feel like it adds a lot of stakes to like getting scenes right on set. Uh, so I'm curious, did the choice to have this in this format work for you, Ryan?
2: Yes, absolutely. The cinematography was by Kusha Jennafield. Mm. Um, who I think did an excellent job. So I think the one thing with the 16 millimeter, I think you can kind of see the graininess. Yes. And I feel like in particular for a wounded fawn, which is a very psychedelic movie, the graininess adds to that feeling of um, detachment from the regular world in a really cool mm. way.
0: Yeah, there's like a hazy glow to it that it's almost unnerving and also kind of makes you wonder what sense. A place and time it is because it looks if you watched it without any context and didn't look up when it was made you could be like oh am i watching a film from like the 70s right now
2: are there there but there's texting in it too so it's like a very cool effect to have like mm. the 70s look with the the phones um
0: yeah i mean just like in the opening frames where they just had they're on telephones like old-fashioned like uh yeah. <laughs> felt like phones you have to plug in to the wall <laughs> well anyway it's not there to assume that this could be taking place in an earlier time than now. But yeah, yeah I I really dug it. I like that you could see the grains too. I think that made me feel a little bit on edge. And I think that added to the tension.
2: Absolutely. I think Gennon Field also does a very great job at the beginning of like having all these very close-up shots. Like someone's talking, but you just see the lower quadrant of their chin.
0: Ooh, yeah. And yeah. I think
2: it's like very alienating in a way that I think was very important for a wounded fawn, because I think it had to alienate us as the audience a little bit to bring us to the very cool place where we ended up going. We're still in non-spoiler territory, so I won't say what yet.
0: Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair bet. How do you think the chemistry was with the two leads? Because with a film like this, it's mostly just shared like shared screen time with two characters the whole time. That's a hard act to pull off.
2: Well, I think they had bad chemistry, but I think that works for the story they're telling. Like, mm. I don't think the two actors had bad chemistry between one another, but I think that 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 Josh Rubin kind of, as he always does when he goes to a cabin, is <laughs> tiptoeing this line between he's charming and you like him, but he's also kind of terrifying. And I think he's very good at tiptoeing that. And I think Sarah Lind is equally good at like, so I think the first time we meet her characters in the first act, so this isn't a spoiler. Um, she says, like, I'm getting laid tonight. Yeah. And so you know her character wants to fuck Josh Rubin's character. And so I think she's also tiptoeing like a line between like, Am I frightened of him? Am I attracted to him? The relationship between the two is awkward, but I think that's exactly what what they need to do for the the film to work.
0: Well, one thing I really loved off the bat was I love I love that line, like this weekend, I got plans, ladies, I'm getting laid. I was like, that's fantastic. And so fun because then I love the, what I think any other filmmaker that's not someone like Travis Stevens could cut out is the montage in the beginning where she's just like thinking of like what album to bring. That's like a good, like, let's get down music, like what clothes she wants to wear, like, and like talking to her cat about it. And you can tell, like, there's this earnestness to it and this like trepidation about getting back into dating again because there's enough dialogue and subtext for us to think that like she's not been in a relationship or had anyone around for some time and that is scary in itself and to get back in there and I think that earnestness plays out really well towards especially the middling part of the film because then she starts wondering and things start to be a bit off if it's her anxiety that's calling the shots or if something is happening either at the house or something is happening with Bruce and I think that wouldn't work out as well if we weren't really like rooting for her and i think if the film does a good job of that and of like mildly spoilery we know from the get-go bruce is a serial killer because one of the first things we see in the film is him killing someone there's no effort placed in the shock and turn of like oh reveal he's a serial killer necessarily it's more about like us waiting for when meredith will realize that and i think that's where like what you're talking about like the it's like off kilter chemistry where they're, they're, yeah. they're like, it's almost like they're playing in two different movies. Like one is like an earnest rom-com and, and Josh Rubin's just like leaning into the like thriller that's un- unfolding. And we know both sides of the story. So I feel like that's what makes the viewer feel a part of the process.
2: Off kilter is such a great way to put it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What do you, Ooh, do you want to venture into spoiler territory or is there anything else you want to talk about before we go there?
2: I think one or two other things. Um, okay. What did you think of the weapon he uses? do you have is there a name for that? Do you know
0: i I don't. Uh, I also feel like it was I think the film made a smart choice to show more of the effects on the body than necessarily yeah. see what the weapon was because I think that's the a big undercurrent of the film is in a horrific way that like only horror can do is exploring the way that like men exploit women and <laughs> take from them and bleed them dry. Uh, literally in this film, but also like for their beauty, for their artwork, for their power. And that's a, a big theme of the film. So I thought it was a nice choice to just focus more on the blood and like the marks on them than what did it. I feel like sometimes in slashers, focusing on the weapon, especially when it's a male killer, gives them more power. And then it becomes like, it's it's almost because it's like, I don't know if it's because like the phallic implications of it or whatever, but it, it almost feels like the attention is taken away from what the man is doing if we're so obsessed with how he's doing it.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I I also like the weapon. Um, just for anyone who hasn't seen a picture of the weapon, it was like uh it almost looked like one of those machines that you squeeze to make your hands stronger.
1: Except yeah. on the
2: inside, there was, I don't know if it's three or four blades, but he grabs grab someone by the neck and squeeze. So I think your your point about how it's not phallic is is really intelligent. I'm really glad you said that because I had not made that connection. Slashers, especially according to Carol Clover and um, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, mm-hmm. the the weapon is phallic because the slasher himself or herself is trying to like reclaim a type of masculinity, and that's like uh, according to Clover, like one of like the, the big subtexts of all these movies. And I think this movie was smart to stay away from it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I completely agree with you, and I completely love your point about. Bleeding people, dry, bleeding women, dry.
0: We're gonna have to ask Josh about that. But like, what do you feel about this?
2: <laughs> yeah. Um. The other thing I really liked about it is that it was just a weapon I hadn't seen before in a mm-hmm. film, and mm-hmm. I liked that. It reminded me more of the the weapons in the Bruce Lee movie, where you probably remember the name of this movie, where he's on the island and there's a fighting tournament, and he has to sneak around. And at the end, there's a boss fight with the guy who has multiple hand changes. Oh,
0: I'm blanking like, on it, but I know what you're talking about.
2: Yeah. You reminded me of that movie um, a lot, that particular weapon.
0: Mm.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, the other thing I'll talk about before the spoiler movies. Yeah. How do you feel like this fits into Travis Stevens' filmography? This is his third film, and oh. he his previous two were Jacob's Wife, which was the, mm-hmm. the second movie, and the first movie, The Girl on the Third Floor.
0: I have such an affinity for Girl in the Third Floor* just because it's it's so strange. I don't think, as a film, I think there's some elements that don't fully coalesce, but it's so prettily shot, uh, for lack of better words. And the yes. effects are so unique that I'm fascinated by it. And it's definitely one of those films where it's like, it sticks in your mind and you want to revisit it. I think of the three, I think Jacob's Wife feels the most polished. But I think Mm. this one feels the most emotionally resonant for me, especially as someone who like in college, I went through a little surrealism phase. Uh, Don't quote me on anything at this point, because a lot of that is out of my brain. But I think this is like one of the few times I've seen someone be inspired by surrealist art and incorporate it into a film that feels and is surreal, where I feel like all the times people say the word surreal really lightly, what they're just doing is like contrast in the film of like here's disparate elements boom surreal and you're like that's not really what surrealism is
2: that's really interesting i feel like i want to ask you a million questions about that but i also don't want to go like talk about mandy for the next 45 minutes
0: <laughs> yeah see i would i would say mandy isn't that's a great example of like mandy's not surreal but people call it surreal all the time huh. i wouldn't say it's surreal yeah maybe yeah. one day we'll do a surreal horror episode yes. i can bring I in some andre breton it'll be a good time <laughs>
2: For me, I feel like Travis Stevens is great. I think he's carving himself out a space as a horror director mm-hmm. who's very interested in middle age relationships, which mm-hmm. I think is a very interesting space for anyone to work at. Because I think a lot of, especially on Twitter, you hear all the time the complaint is like, we don't have movies about middle age relationships anymore. The studios don't pay for those anymore. We just get Marvel movies all the time. Mm-hmm. And this is, it seems like Travis Stevens is actually making the kind of movies that address that complaint and i think it's just a really cool space for anyone to work in i think after midnight also does a very good job of working in that particular space the middle-aged relationship space
0: Mm, i totally agree
2: so are you ready for some spoilers
0: let's do it because it gets it gets fucking weird but in the best possible way (laughs) yeah okay so what do you what was your interpretation of like what happened in the film
2: I don't have, like, a a read, but I feel like as, like, a writer, I don't try to get, like, a read, especially in the situation, because I think we're supposed to be in between this place where we're supposed to be guessing, is this, is everything Josh Rubin's character sees, is that all real? Or does he have a chip from the statue in his brain that's making him hallucinate everything that's happening?
0: Oh, I didn't even think about that, of the... That some part of the statue could be in him from getting like hit. That's a fascinating idea.
2: I think he keeps reaching in there. I think even at the very end, the uh, Sarah Lynn's, I don't know if it's still Sarah Lynn in at that, that rope. Um sure. I don't know if it's the same character, but he, she gets him to try to rip out like a chip from his brain, I think. Not like a yeah, a no. microchip, like a a broken off piece of something,
0: right. like the the piece inside of me that that's not me. It's him. I mean, I literally thought that it was just just the metaphor running. Uh, and then I loved when like the little like wounded baby bird came out of his brain. and I was like, wow, what a great yeah. like visual. see, that's a great example of a surreal moment if someone's like, take this part of your yourself out and then it's like, this thing that could be like heavy with meaning and also meaningless at the same time. And the point is that it exists in that space and that's okay. And we don't have to dig deeper or we can dig deeper and that's really fun. And it's, that's like the invitation to just wonder is like that for me, is that surreal. Um,
2: Okay. Yeah. the, The third thing that makes me, I think about is like, were these Greek figures actually there?
0: Well, I know in the film's production notes, like the idea behind the film was there should be three, for lack of better words, lenses. Like there's Meredith's perspective, there's Bruce's perspective, and there's the audience's perspective. And I think each of those characters has a different vision to what happened. And we're just left like to choose our own adventure, really. I think I like the version where that they're almost like furies at this point, like the physical embodiment of uh, like in Greek mythology, like akin to like sirens and stuff, like these usually femme beings that are out to like destroy the the oppressive male force and will like seduce them and trick them and and tear them apart. And I like to think of that as being kind of real just because we don't really get that in horror films. You know, we get like angry ghosts and stuff, but never have I seen like... Outside of TV shows like Furies in a horror movie.
2: Which is very, very cool. Well, before we go into that, I wanted to ask you the three creatures, almost like Cenobites, that are hunting Bruce, mm-hmm. are they the creatures from the statue that we see at the very beginning?
0: That's what I felt when I was watching it initially. But I also think the great thing about this film is like it's worth re watching it because I think when you first meet the figures in the statue, it's at that opening auction scene. And they're giving you some background behind it. And I wonder how much of it was his reimagining of them or like if this was a modernization of them or this was just like something else altogether. Um, So I don't know. But uh, yeah, I think it's open ended, I guess.
2: Yeah. I think what I probably dug the most about bringing in these Greek furies it's like I, I compared them to Cenobites uh, earlier.
1: yeah. But that's do- not even
2: really a good comparison, you know? I feel like this movie, by taking in Greek imagery, really redefined the visual palette. Because I think horror sometimes falls into this trap where everything is the next everything. But mm-hmm. with a wounded fawn, because of the Greek imagery in large part, and the ambiguity, I don't feel like there's a movie I could be like, this is like the next X movie x is yeah. an uh, unknown variable not x is in TI West's film from this year.
0: Yeah. <laughs> good good distinction. Yeah, I think you're right about that. I I think that just goes to show you how like Travis Stevens is just carving out his own niche cuz I think his other two films um you could probably draw a comparison with other films like of that ilk, but I feel like this one is it feels unique and I don't say that lately.
2: Yeah. In a lot of ways, and this isn't a, a dig on his other two movies. It yeah. feels like this movie is completely him. It's completely mm. his style mm. in a way that's very cool. I think the majority of great artists get to a place where like, I do not you don't debate whether they're the best or not. You talk about like the individual elements of their voice and style. Mm. If that makes sense. And I feel like he's heading in like that kind of direction where he's just really refining what it is that he does
0: yeah so what did you think of the ending overall
2: i liked it a lot um (laughs) i want to hear your opinion and then i want to talk about the the credits
0: oh god the credits i really like the ending i whether or not that fury entity is meredith at the end i honestly don't even think it matters but i think her bearing witness to him in agony and just calmly like standing there is so important for the film because it makes it, you know, uh, pun intended, a cut above like a gallow film, you know, where the the targeted subjects throughout this film is now the one that gets to watch the targeter suffer and just hold that in a frame, uh, which will go into our critics discussion, obviously. But I just yeah. thought that that was it's just a beautiful choice, like a self-aware choice. It's meta in a light way, like in a light-handed way. There's no like quippy one-liner. We don't get his voice at the end. He doesn't say anything. We just get her gaze. And I think that's what the film was all building towards. And I liked it.
2: That is so cool. I would not have described it that way or even thought of it in those terms. That is a brilliant observation.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, what did you think?
2: <laughs> I liked it. I just... <laughs> I love what you had to say about the reversal of gazes. I think that is incredible. And it it does really make you think about like, I've seen a lot of uh, giallos, right? And like, I really love the cat and mouse element. I really love that kind of like back and forth. But I do feel like a lot of times it's missing like anything deeper than that. And this movie feels like it has that, that deeper element. Because I think you can have both. I don't think you necessarily need them. I think there's great movies that are just fun And there's great movies that are rife with metaphor. But I think this movie manages to kind of be a little bit of both, which I think is just very, very cool.
0: Yeah. And I think to bring up the end credits part, I think that's why he takes so goddamn long to die because it wants us to see him suffer unimaginably with himself, with his body uh, and just, we just have to, we just hold it there. And I think that was... The discomfort I felt by continuing to watch it made me kind of call myself out in a, in a way of just being like, how many times have you seen more girls like gruesome things with this with violence towards fem bodies or other people? What when is the last week you can remember that you saw like like a privileged white dude being slashed and you just watch him bleed out for like five minutes straight? It, yes. I can't think of it. I can't think of one.
2: <laughs> I had a very different reaction. <laughs> what was <that>? um, <laughs> I think that. After about 10 seconds, I felt like I understood what was happening. And then I started laughing.
0: It is kind of funny. It's like funny. It's morbidly funny. We're like, at first, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. But then it goes back. It does that like cyclical thing where it's like really funny. And then you're like, oh, this is I am this is uncomfortable. But then it does kind of go back to funny. It's like it keeps looping, I think, in a way.
2: I think the the thing that got me after like the, the first loop of funny was I started thinking like, of josh rubin as a person instead of bruce as a character <laughs> and wondering yeah. like do they have like a timer for him did they time the credits to how long he could flail
1: is oh, there a shower
2: we have, we have he to. we have to drive that. home afterwards right <laughs> so is he showering is josh rubin just gonna be in his car caked in mud and fake well there must be a shower but that's that's how my brain works my brain is bad and If I am uncomfortable for more than 30 seconds, my brain will turn something into a joke. I just want to know if they had a timer on set.
0: So since it was shot with film, that means like someone is standing there with that with that camera. And probably after a certain point you're gonna have to reload that camera after getting multiple takes or whatnot. So I'm like, how long was he doing that for? (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us again. Uh, So my name is Cass, and this is our lovely co-host, Ryan.
2: Hey. Hey.
0: Uh, So Ryan, do you want to start us off with our first question? Yeah,
2: we're going to go straight to the the hard-hitting ones. (laughs) A wounded fawn and scare me. Is there anyone who's willing to still go to a cabin with you?
1: Hell no. Hell no. (laughs) Yeah, I, I I don't know, and if they if they did, it would probably be for just the the creepiest fandom ever. Yeah, I'm I'm starting to see some whisperings of like I don't care, I let him take me to a cabin. Um, just you know, just some weird, just some 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 weird uh t- 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 titillated fans who are like, well, wow, that's great. Um, who who wouldn't want uh, those cheekbones to freak me out? Which you know, the high school me, is very flattered, but uh, I yeah, I I, uh, I wouldn't. <laughs> i wouldn't take me to a cabin i'll put it that way
0: well so *A Winter fond was shot on 16 millimeter film and i just would love to hear more about how that affects your approach to acting on that day because just for listeners who might or may not know like sometimes with film in this way you have to take breaks you have to reload film film is like precious because it's not digital so some shots like have yeah. to be done in a one shot or maybe like you had like a very limited time to get it done based on the resources available. So I'd love to hear how this style of shooting affected your performance for better, for worse, or just inspired you to take on a different approach.
1: Uh, I think it. that's an awesome question. I think it affected all of our performances for the better, because what it does is it ignites you and creates this kind of electricity in the air to get it right. Uh, Whereas, you know, stopping yourself and restarting yourself ad infinitum when you're shooting digitally has become the norm for films shot digitally. The actors can kind of, you know, fuck around. And I think it's created a kind of culture of not quite learning your lines and, you know, Mm -hmm. showing up and figuring it out on the day without... You know, with less prep, whereas like, you know, we budgeted only so many film cartridges per day for the 28 some odd days of shooting a wounded fawn. So Sarah and I certainly had to have all of our lines learned. And, you know, we practiced it only, you know, so many times because uh, t- time is of uh, is of the essence with, you know, these kind of independent films. Mm. So I, I think it made all of our performances better.
0: And I love that uh, in the production notes, Travis Steven talked a lot about how the surrealist artwork of Lenore Carrington and Dorothea Tanning inspired a lot of the film's visual approach and just focus on exploring like women muses and and uh, the erasure of women in art. So I'm really curious if mm-hmm. there was any like uh, art stills on set that you looked into for inspiration, or had any kind of like surrealist film watch or like dig into artwork to help you get into this otherworldly world.
1: Well, luckily, for me, I just showed up and played the serial killer. You know, my <laughs> whole thing was like my, my I already had enough of a challenge on my plate, like mm-hmm, sort mm-hmm. of wrapping my head around the character and as you know someone who's known for mostly doing characters on college humor videos um and you know, making a werewolf movie and um, you know, scare me and the like. <clears throat> I showed up as a performer and just kind of, you know, had, had my own acting challenge to not play things funny and to play things um, the way that an egotistical sociopath uh, or this kind of narcissistic sociopath would. Um, and so that was enough of a challenge for me, one that I was super excited for, But but as far as like, you know, the art world of it all, that was all Travis, you know, he was mm-hmm. the one who kind of contextualized the story of the Furies Attacking this kind of Pat- Patrick Bateman-esque character, and, you know, putting him on trial, so to speak, um, that was that was his world to to create. So, so for me, no, I kind of, you know, I, I I let that part of the part of the painting, um, I left that part of the the painting of it all up to uh, up to Travis, um, who certainly did his research
0: hmm Yeah, and I know uh, we, we talked about this at the at the, the jump, <laughs> but you do like to play characters that are uh, a bit uh, out of their mind. Uh, but one thing I, I love when you do this, though, is I think you have such a knack for stillness, because I think, for me at least, that builds the dread more, because when your characters, especially like this one, Bruce, is silent and quiet and tilts his head, I don't know if this is going to be the moment where the film rushes up to 11, or if we're just going to have <laughs> another beat of that. Uh, so I'd love to know... How do you decide on your movements in that way? Like does it come from more of like an intuitive space of just wanting to like hold and like hold a breath to keep that tension? Or is it something like that you kind of play with more with the director on set? Oh
1: my gosh, such an awesome question. So, you, so you, you're knocking it out of the park, first of all. Um no, and I've done so. I have I have <laughs> done so many of these interviews throughout my career and yet have 50 to go and all of the recent ones including this one especially such, such awesome questions um, and that is a great one I the, the stillness um, broad strokes like globally as a performer um, you have to have control over your instrument because the camera picks up everything um, mm-hmm. even if you move your head uh, a little a, a little bit kind of more um, broadly as you would in even in conversation on, 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 the reg, you know, when there's no camera in front of you, a camera kind of changes everything, picks everything up. It's, it's, and it's also conversely, it's not like you're on stage. Um, less truly is more. Uh, and, you know, unless you're wearing prosthetics or you a know, Bigfoot costume or something. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it was years of watching other actors, directing other actors, you know, my years of making, thousands of, of sketch videos and even commercials, which is such a technical medium. So much of my direction for actors, at least in my early years was, you know, make your eyes bigger, like keep your head completely still and just look to the left, now look to the right. You know, give me an option for a cutaway. So much of it was about like understanding um, how important control over your instrument is. And especially after like self-directing on my first film, and, you know, so much of my own direction was stopping myself and starting over so that I, I, I knew I could do it a bit more on voice and I could, I could enact a bit more stillness. I just know how stillness affects the viewer, how it affects mm-hmm. me as a viewer, the same way that if you're watching a, a play and a character takes a long pause, you suddenly can kind of feel the audience in the palm of your hand to a mm-hmm. degree. So there's something about taking that time, taking up that space simultaneously controlling your instrument where, yeah, you know, to your point, you can kind of like pull back the slingshot, make people kind of wait for it, wait a breath in an ominous heavy space. Um, And uh, a character like Bruce would make his prey, because he is a predator, he would, you yeah. know, w- would make his female prey kind of sit there in uncomfortable silence, the way that, you know, the the most awful types of men would, you know, kind of want to make a woman squirm in the shadow of their power trip or their, you know, uh, their imagined power trip. So stillness was everything, um, and uh, it's uh, it's it's super super powerful and immensely important in film.
0: I know Ryan really wanted to ask about the weapon of choice for Bruce. Yeah so, you, <laughs>
2: yeah. so you have this weapon. We were talking before, and we loved that the film kind of focused in on one, what is the weapon, but two, we loved how the film focused in on the effect of the weapon more than the weapon itself. We were curious kind of what you thought of that.
1: Um uh sorry can you can you what's the what's the, the heart of the question is like more about like uh 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 the the relation in, in terms of like the relation to the character like the effect that the weapon yeah. would have yeah
0: yeah like how like in uh in other movies are like usually like the like a knife is more phallic but sometimes it kind of sensationalizes right. it a bit because we see the big weapon but in this one it's such a small like uh contained one and I the film focuses yeah. more on the like the. How it affects the women, than necessarily like the slashing part of it. So, like, how did, did you feel about that part and that weapon for the character?
1: Well, Travis uh, contextualized this really, really well the other day, or articulated super well the other day. He was like, "This type of character, Bruce, Bruce Ernst, would be one to be like, you know, the other slashers, mm-hmm. Michael Myers and Jason. You know, they use a machete, they use knives, right? And I'm, I'm not like that. Like, I, I have this exotic." Yeah claw-like weapon derived from India called a knock that is um was used to make murders uh look like a tiger attack and it's super exotic you know this guy's a total show-off he has to have the exotic sort of um car no one has the the vintage car the kind of um uh our, our, deco what's what what's the term for the uh like danish modern furniture and that type of house to complement that oh yeah, yeah um and so i think it's it's just another instrument in his uh his his egoistic narrative of not just being a murderer but in 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 just the um how how he sees himself in the in the great show of his life if that makes sense um yeah. And yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question in regards to like how it was used, you know, um, on his victims. Except that, like, you know, again, it's 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 another instrument of uh, in his in his arsenal of shiny, important, one of a kind things to kind mm-hmm. of make him himself feel more important.
0: I love that. I think that uh, that feeds into like the Patrick Bateman like aspect that you're describing to him and it makes total sense thinking about it that way. Like, of course, he would be like, no, this has to be like, there's only five of these in the world and I have
1: one. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: and you're like, oh, cute.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. For Mr. Um, know-it-all, you know. <laughs>
0: That's uh, so one thing that we were dying to ask and we were just obsessing over it earlier uh, in the review <clears> portion <throat> of this episode and definitely heading into spoiler territory now. Uh, so the end credit scene, I have to ask like how long did that take, take? Like I know Ryan was wondering about uh, a timer.
2: <laughs> did they have like a timer for you? And afterwards, cause you're you were rolling in mud with fake blood coming out of your neck for like five minutes straight. Was there a shower you could use or did you just have to go <laughs> home caked in mud?
1: I remember that shower very well. Um, <laughs> uh, so there's another five minutes on the cutting room floor, oh believe it or not, um, which is insane to think about. Sarah pointed this out the other day in, in another interview we did because there were 11 minute film cartridges. So, you know, um, and we, 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 were, we were doing the whole thing in one take. Truly a oner. Um, So uh it, it it was it was awesome like um it was the last 48 hours of the shoot and uh we knew that I was just going to go for it I had the the dummy bog knock we had a real one on set um which was super super sharp and heavy and deadly I of course was using the the duplicate which was falling apart in my hands I kept kind of like stabbing myself um <laughs> it was super, it was, it was killer. I mean, it was so quiet in these New Jersey woods and there was like a light drizzle and I was getting wetter and wetter and colder and colder, but you still don't feel it when you're kind of on fully Mm -hmm. committed and all. Um, And Travis, you know, he was still behind camera, um, behind Kasusha, our brilliant cinematographer. And he would, I, I can't remember if he did kind of, kind of say, Okay, we're in the last 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um you're you're fully dead now. But I think like within the course of, of eleven minutes, I knew and I did stop moving. Like once I stopped moving in the end credit sequence, I think what happened was I just laid there until mm-hmm. the film ran out. Oh, um so I I kept twitching and you know, this is kind of the cartoonish element to that. You know, this this it, but it's again, it's like it's a, a powerful Kind of idea conceptually, because here's this sort of, you know, not unkillable killer, but a killer who's so determined and so, you know, powerful up until his his dying breath, and mm-hmm. he's twitching after flaying himself rather than admitting that he's a piece of shit, he's a thief, he's a liar, he's a murderer. He would rather flay himself than do so, and so it's it, it should be a long drawn out cathartic death. He said, I think mean, the brutality of it at some point, but anyway. Yeah. I think Travis side coached a, a bit about it, but I knew, I knew that you can kind of self time yourself to a degree. You know, I kind of felt that five minute point. Um, and then just kind of laid there, you know, and just like the, like the rainfall and, and do its thing. It's pretty, pretty wild.
0: Do we have time for one more question before we wrap? And I want to hold you. Oh my gosh. I have, I have
1: time for, I have at least another 10 minutes. Um, oh, okay. if you guys want to, yeah. Ask away
0: i would love to jam (laughs) all right ryan you're up next
2: so you kind of played you called it a predator and a wounded fawn and to a lesser extent and scare me as well as to an even lesser extent in blood relatives i'm curious is that like a (laughs) challenge you're seeking out or as an actor or is that something that's kind of come to you
1: that's an awesome question i mean like i um With Scare Me, I don't consider Fred necessarily a predator so much as I do an emasculated, uh, toxic male who drank too much. Um, And like most toxic men, when they're um, feeling truly emasculated and backed into a corner, feeling third wheeled or totally out of power, that's probably when they're the most dangerous. And so um, hopefully there's a, I think there is. An unfortunately squirmy, but powerful statement made there about, um, you know, a, a, about those types of insecure, those emasculated men in general and about how unfortunately dangerous um, they are and can be. And, you know, the spoiler, uh, at least theory anyway um, to put out there just from from my end of things is that, you know, he didn't intend to kill her he just pushed things too far. It became rough housing that went too far. That's my, that, that's my sense of, um, that's how I saw Fred. Um, whereas Bruce, you know, that's, that's a role that came to me, I think because Travis saw the darkness and also like the weirdness of what I did and the swings that I took, not just with my work as Fred, but just as my work as a comedian. Um, and so he was like, oh, I think this, this dude can be Patrick Bateman in the evil dead cabin. I think this dude (laughs) could take his like Bruce Campbell swing. Um, and I think he can play evil because we saw DNA of that in, um, in scare me. And then, you know, with, with blood relatives, which is wholly a different film. I mean, for me to like, basically play the Renfield character was just like the kind of thing I could roll out of bed and do, you know whatever that means about me as a person but um i just i've played so many and delighted in playing so many weirdos for my entire life i mean I, I have i have camcorder you know homemade movies with buddies where i was trying to like impersonate philip seymour hoffman's kind of energy like in the late 90s you know like talking to myself in a mirror with like a comb over and, you know just like playing like super weird characters um I guess I just like really always loved those types of oddball roles and, you know, Coen Brothers films or indie films um, and found them far more interesting than like your average protagonist. So all these roles have kind of found me. I don't know why, but I also just truly enjoy playing, you know, the weirdo. I had a hell of a lot of fun playing the baddie on wounded fawn but blood relatives is great because it just felt like you know that scene itself felt you know it was the comic relief it was the kind of sketch even though it was sort of sketchy
0: the sketchy sketch <laughs>
1: yeah exactly yeah Vic had a really funny comment victoria morales who who plays jane we'd, we'd worked together previously on natalie morales's plan b um and that was where i first met her and i was playing this you know gas station creep who was sort of creeping on her yet again. And she was like, why do we keep doing these roles for, you know, you're creeping on me, Josh, it's, it's hysterical. Um, but uh, yeah, my buddy, Natalie knew that I could, I could just, uh, I don't know, d- deliver.
2: <laughs> so on Blood Relatives, you're also serving as a producer. How did you balance yeah. your uh, front of the camera and behind the camera duties?
1: It was pretty easy. The Roger role was only, um, it was only a day. Probably, probably in fact just a few hours of a full day of shooting. Um so for ninety-nine point nine percent of that shoot, I was otherwise behind the map the monitor of being a producer, you know, with my coffee and my coat and my, you know, concern for Noah's well being, rushing in and trying, you know, making suggestions to help everybody uh, you know, reach the same goal creatively, that kind of thing, make the day go quicker
0: i would love to know from because you're someone who's self-directed uh directed acted when you're producing on a film that you acted in uh in like a smaller role but another less important role (laughs) but (laughs) how does that affect your connection to the to the project like do you feel a bit more i'm guessing like precious with it since it's something that you're in or do you feel like it makes it harder to to produce while you when you're also uh, on set like I feel like that balance is kind of tricky well
1: that's that's interesting I don't know if this this answers your your question I mean it, it you know for for scare me I'll say that like I was way more concerned about being a, a good acting partner to mm. to Aya and to Chris and to and to Becky Drysdale who plays Bettina that they driver than I was for my own shots I was way more concerned about them getting the great performance than I was about my own performance um as many kind of options and do-overs as I kind of gave myself and then with Blood Relatives I I think because it was such a fast and furious shoot by the time my stuff rolled around I certainly wasn't precious about what I was doing I was just relishing in in you know, some such an empath like relishing in, in Noah getting a break from being in front of the camera for you know eighty nine point nine percent yeah of the, of the film. Yeah. Um. So there was no preciousness about my my role in blood relatives, other than just kind of enjoying the fact that everyone can get a laugh out of you know whatever like Josh Rubin can do rolling out of bed making people laugh with his like you know silly silly eyeball look and and uh funny voice and just kind of being being as as uh as malleable for for noah who can finally just sit back and direct without wearing that leather jacket and all the makeup and everything um so i don't know if that i don't know if that answers your your question i think if, if anything yeah. it just feels quite selfless you know unfortunately i probably might you know my role probably suffered a little bit on scare me because i just was kind of yeah 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 I'll just rush through it you know because I, I want to be a good producer and get everybody home and you're all here working for peanuts and you know let's let's make sure I is warm yeah. and all that stuff
0: yeah no I think that totally answers it. I think it's like for every person that produces and acts everyone I think everyone feels different about that and especially differently per project because every set is different so it's just fascinating to hear yeah. how you fell on on either set to be honest so yeah. Yeah. A
1: great <laughs> yeah, Of course. Yeah. Another another banger of a question.
0: Uh, a plus for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. <laughs> uh, so speaking of blood relatives, what is your go-to uh, like holiday horror favorite movie this season or
1: like any season prior? Oh man, that's I know that's awesome. Uh, <laughs> well, holiday horror one of the. Few true good ones. Well, I I think there's two that I love to rewatch. Um, Gremlins is just so warm and cozy, and Joe Dante just rules, just Mm -hmm. a wonderful director. I, 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 you know, he's directed so many of my favorite films. Gremlins is just killer. It's got that storybook town, and that you know, that it it clearly looks like a set, and it, it feels just so kind of Norman Rockwell and then corrupted by these things. And actually, the horror does go hard. Yeah, in Gremlins, I mean, people are straight up murdered,
0: mm-hmm. um, With, like
1: lawnmowers. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, lawnmowers, and <laughs> you know, uh, syringes, and that professor, and scratches, and you know, all that stuff. Um, and the gore is so good. And also, I really like Scrooged. Um, it's oh, yeah, Bill that, Murray. That, <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes, it's, it's, it's a okay. shame that you know everything coming is coming to light about Bill Murray is coming to light, but, but yeah. as a movie, as a movie, Scrooged is pretty fucking rad. I mean, yes. effects are fun. It's Richard Donner. It's got scope. It's it's about, I don't think it was in New York. I think it was in Chicago or maybe it was LA. I, I, I can't remember where it took place, but it was like the the, the setting of the city mm-hmm. during Christmas felt feels kind of nostalgic to me. And then ending with that killer Al Green song, you know, mm-hmm. put a little love in your heart and Aunt Ramsey's appearance. I mean, everything about that movie is just a great holiday holiday movie great holiday horror I feel like I'm I'm discovering films last year I made a point to to dis, you know to go out of my way to discover some holiday horrors Krampus is just fucking awesome I love Krampus so much I think that's like I would have dream of making a film like that um and I love Mike Doherty's work but I think yeah I think Gremlins and Scrooge they were my go-tos for for some time
0: Oh, I would love you to team up with Mike Doherty. I'm a huge fan of his. I want another holiday film from his. We got trick or treat. Uh, we got Krampus. Let's do another.
1: one. <laughs> oh my God. I, yeah. I think he's just a total genius. I think, I think they are actively, you know, on the, uh, uh, on the the fast track for
2: trick or treat too, which is pretty rad. Oh, that'd be
0: awesome. Oh, well, I so <laughs> happy. <have it. laughs> yeah. All right, Ryan, you get the last question of the night.
2: Is there anything we haven't asked you about that you wish we did? Oh man,
1: Uh, you have asked such great, unexpected questions that I'm speechless. So clearly, (laughs) I'm floored. (laughs) So clearly, I can't. I can't even muster what that question would possibly be because I'm so um, delightfully drained with. Uh, uh, <laughs> with answering these questions that were so unexpected I had to use all my brain power and not just go on a an automated uh response mode like I've been for most of most of my typical interviews um so no I mean I I, I feel you've you've uh we've done it we've covered you it did. all I mean is there any question you haven't asked me if you feel like just you just gotta you know I don't know
0: Mm, maybe it's a fun ending one. Just because now that you started talking about Scrooge, all I could think of was that one ghost in the movie. I forget which one it is, so forgive me, internet people. But where like the trench coat opens up and there's all the little monsters and coolies inside. Yeah. Amazing practical effects. So I was just thinking about on this film, were there any like either set pieces or um, characters or little creatures on set that like won over your heart?
1: Of uh, uh for in Scrooge in particular. Oh no, I mean in a wounded fawn. A wounded fawn. Oh in a yeah. oh in a wounded yeah, fawn. Yeah. I mean in a in a wounded fawn. Um wildly with all the beautiful visuals of that film and all of it was was in camera, um, with the exception of uh I believe it was no, it wasn't Mijera. M- M- it was Electo, who's Barr's character sort of briefly is, you know, turns into the dog. Um, oh, yeah. The dog briefly turns into her. The scene that really got me, that actually lured me in when I was reading the script, being on set and seeing 50 feet of spectral fabric like blown oh, wow. into the air by wind machines was so rad. And it would get, you know, truly like that whole thing of, you know acting opposite something whether a creature or otherwise in in the actual space in the physical space you know um aiding in your performance it's true like it, it it was so powerful to see this large sheet fly in the air and then you're kind of in peripherally watching crew members sort of wrangle it that was so exciting um and i think it i think it it certainly made me a better performer to be able to react to this like, you know, ghostly giant. And it was just fabric, you know, it's just a wind machine and some fabric blown into the air and it's so impressive. So that was the one that I, I always think of. Um, and it was also the image that I read in the script, you know, when I essentially decided to to do the movie where I was like, wow, I can't wait for that moment. I can't wait to act opposite. I could see myself looking up at this giant of a thing in the woods and how rad that'll be.
0: I love that. Well, yeah. that's all we have on our end, but thank you so much for being such a lovely interviewee. We had yes, a lot of fun. <laughs> I feel like I'm beaming.
1: <laughs> oh, man, it was such a pleasure. I can't thank uh, you both enough for your uh, wonderful question.
0: Uh Thanks, Josh. Thank
1: you,
2: Josh.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to our interview with Josh Rubin. And if you haven't already, though you definitely should before listening to the spoilery review and interview, definitely go check out travis stevens a wounded fawn streaming now on shutter till next time